Chapter 16 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Santiago del Estero. March 30th. On leaving Juanilla, our route lay across a rather less desert country. We were off early, before the mosquitoes had slept off the last night's orgy. But they got up soon after us, when the sun warmed their wings, half paralyzed by the cold of the morning dew. We cooked and devoured our midday asado in the middle of the village of Atamiski, in front of the butcher's house. This was a typical dwelling of the country, a one-roomed rancho with no window. Inside was nothing save fleas and dirt, but outside was all the careful housewife's apparatus. First, in front of the door, was a mud structure like a beehive. This was the oven wherein the bread is baked. Near this was a hollowed stump of a tree forming a big mortar, in which a woman was crushing maize or algaroba pods with a wooden pestle. The meat, charqui, hung in festoons from the branches of a large mimosa. This is certainly a most out-of-door people. In this province, the cooking of a household is done outside. The family eat outside. At night, lock up the house and sleep outside. In short, they exist altogether outside, wisely seeing what worse than pigsties their ranchos are. But why do they take the trouble of constructing houses at all, since they apparently make no matter of use of them? I cannot imagine, unless, upon mature consideration, it be for the laudable object of becoming householders, and so having a vote. But, I forget we are enlightened, universal-franchised South America, not in feudal England. Here we found that the inhabitants understood but little Spanish and spoke Quichua exclusively. In the evening, we reached Loreto, the largest town between Cordoba and Santiago, but that is not saying much. The photographer of Cordoba had spoken to us of Loreto and marked it down on the road plan he had prepared for us as a town of women. Such towns, where men are few, the population being almost exclusively made up of the fair sex, are not rare in some parts of the Argentine Republic. In all parts of this province, the traveler is especially struck by the disproportion of the sexes. This I have heard attributed to the revolutions and to the sweeping conscriptions the tyrant governor of a province often decrees in order to strengthen his personal power. This Argentine confederation has been, and still to a lesser extent will be, until the Unitarios get the upper hand for good, a collection of almost independent states or provinces. Each has its separate provincial government, its provincial army, its local satrap, who often as not sets at naught the impotent edicts of the central national government. In this province of Santiago, some few years ago, reigned almost as kings, or more exactly as powerful feudal barons, the Taboadas, a noble family, haughty and ambitious. The flower of the land was taken by these to serve in the provincial army, which they maintained on a far higher footing than was necessary to protect the Indian frontier. Thousands of gaucho cavalry were kept ever in readiness to advance against the neighboring provinces when disputes arose between the Taboadas and rival satraps. It was this state of things, I am told, that accounts for the now paucity of men in Loreto and other towns. 
the nero-like cruelties and lusts the unbridled tyranny of these republican presidents dictators and governors would hardly be credited by folks at home these men ignorant as a rule mere gauchos some of them raised themselves to the little brief authority by the means of assassination treachery and crime and with these same they protect themselves through their rapacious career until the assassin's knife makes way for some greater tyrant the montaneros or organized bands of gaucho outlaws became the ready tool of any would-be despot who offers hope of plunder and the wild hordes of the pampas are brought down to overrun the civilization of the city it is this system that has ruined what would otherwise be flourishing towns and centers of commerce and industry the stranger is struck with astonishment and is at a loss for an explanation when he comes across so many towns in this republic considerable and ancient many of them that are now falling in ruins and whose grass-grown streets are almost deserted by man about half a mile or so outside the town of women was a rancho here indeed was a man but he was not a whole one for he was lying very pale and weak on a catre in front of his hut having been severely wounded by a jaguar that he had hunted and driven at bay he was feebly sucking mate when we approached two small naked brown children sat by him on the ground each with two broad rings of flies settled around his eyes like the black rims of spectacles for like the egyptian infant the argentine country child never bethinks him of brushing away these flies but sits down seemingly perfectly comfortable with fifty or sixty thus roosting around his optics there the two pot-bellied little urchins squatted stolidly chewing algaroba pods which seemed to be the sole diet of the poorer children of this province not a very nourishing one either to procure enough sustenance in this way necessitates about thirteen hours of persistent chewing a day thus the stomachs of the young here like those of all savages who live on vegetables and roots alone are bulky and ox-like in proportion this man could sell us alfalfa and charqui and behind his house was a small pond of muddy water so we determined to camp here for the night instead of thrusting ourselves on the hospitality of the loretanas besides it was far from certain if forage would be procurable within the walls of the town and yet again would it not have been an over-adventuresome and perilous thing to have passed down those mud streets and found ourselves alone and unprotected males among so many women caramba it was too perilous and legends of fierce amazons rose to our memory and the fearful laws of that city of fair girls where tennyson's princess held her sway so we off-saddled and prepared our camp by the side of the mosquito-haunted laguna smoke could not keep off their sting but women not that we falcons are misogynists heaven forbid but from the watch-tower of the city did the sentinel maiden perceive the four horsemen from a far country, and she reported us to the governess. Then was a consultation held, and the elder said, Let us send some forth that they may slay these gringo intruders, gringos and males to boot. It is horrible. But the younger women were loath that this should be done, for they had perceived that the horsemen were not uncomely, and being women they felt much curiosity to know what these men in so strange apparel and stained with long travel might be 
Now, happily, the younger women were the majority in the council, so there were sent forth to invite us as friends within the walls two delegates, one an elder and stately matron, one a graceful dark-eyed girl. Afar off we saw them approaching, so we tried to look our best, shook the dust off our ponchos, gave our sombreros a gay cavalier-like askewness, twirled our mustaches, and put on our most superior smiles. They came up, and then we felt small indeed, for they paid no manner of attention to us. They had walked hither, not for us, but to visit the sick man who was their relative, and to bear him grateful delicacies. All I have written above was the mere offspring of our wanton imaginations, the conjecture of our vanity, when we perceived the two black-draped figures coming out of the town towards us. After these ministers of mercy had seen to the wants of the wounded man, they condescended to notice us and inquired of him what we were. On hearing our tale, the elder woman came up and, with a very pleasant manner, invited us to her house in the town. Senores caballeros, she said, I have an apartment in my house which is not in use, and which I shall be happy to place at your disposition for the night, if you will accept of it. There is a well hard by, and I can supply you with a sufficiency of beef, maize, and alfalfa. We accepted her gracious offer, resaddled, put our baggage on the pack animal, and followed her into the town. The poor horses evidently did not relish this, for we had ridden them fifty-five miles this day, and they naturally thought the time for repose had arrived. But they had not far to go, ere they were again unsaddled and at ease. While our asado was cooking in the courtyard, we took a stroll through the town. The small number of men in the place was certainly extraordinary. At last, in one of the stores, we did find quite a considerable group of our own sex drinking, cutthroat-looking gauchos, all with long knives, some with revolvers, but who politely insisted on our drinking with them. Here, too, was an individual who deserves particular mention, a dark man, beardless, with bright, beady eyes and much of the Indian in his blood. He was well-dressed, but in barbaric fashion, that differed considerably from that of the gauchos round in its details. A scarlet kerchief was around his head below a sombrero. His ponchos was of gaudy colors and strange pattern. His silver spurs were massive and gold earrings were in his ears. When he spoke, it was with a pompous nasal drawl, very deliberate and offensive to ears unaccustomed to it. This man was a Bolivian coya, a traveling herbalist or quack doctor. These Indian and half-breed coyas have a great reputation all over South America. They travel with their packs of drugs to the southernmost camps of Buenos Aires and northwards to the shores of Panama. They are looked upon with much reverence by the gauchos of the Pampas as great medicine men, conjurers, and miracle workers. That there is much humbug in these coyas is true, but there is much besides. There is a sort of primitive college in Bolivia where the would-be coyas receive their diplomas. This college has no buildings, no books. The primeval forest serves for both. The elder coyas take the young aspirants out into the middle of that glorious Bolivian vegetation and expound to them, day after day, the properties and secret virtues, the poisonous effects 
of all the herbs and animal distillations as handed down by tradition from generation to generation, from Coya to Coya, long ere the Spaniards stepped on the American shore. All the instruction is oral. None of this lore has ever been committed to writing. I doubt if one out of twenty of the learned dons and doctors of the College of Coyas can read or write. When the young man has imbibed all this antique wisdom, a wand painted in spiral stripes is given to him, he is solemnly called by the name of Coya, and he is sent forth to wander over the wide continent on his ealing errand. Not to be despised is the medical science of these unlettered men. That traditionary system, that empirical wisdom of many centuries, contains many wonderful and useful secrets unknown to our European schools. I have heard of several extraordinary cures performed by them on skeptical Englishmen, not at all likely to be taken in by a common quack. For all fevers, snake bites, and diseases peculiar to this country, give me the Bolivian coyas with their striped wand. They know the leaf that is the magical dispeller of fever. They can extract charms from innocent-looking insects that will allay the pains of rheumatism. They can teach you how to mix your mother-in-law's mate with an essence that will bring peace to your household. They will sell you chips of wood, the which, if you throw them in a stream or pond, will poison or intoxicate all the fish, so that they float on the surface and can be easily caught. But as a surgeon, the coya is not to be relied on. Of anatomy, physiology, or any other ology, of course, he knows nothing whatever, though he will talk all sorts of incomprehensible jargon about them for your benefit. March 31st. From Loreto, a two-day's journey brought us to Santiago del Estero, the capital of the province. Our route lay across a much pleasanter country than that we had left. The vegetation, more tropical in nature, was fresh and green after the recent rains. Below the bushes was spread a soft carpet, not of grass, but of lovely flowers, verbenas, polyanthi, tulips, chamomile, and others. Towering above the lower bushes were stately trees, the quebrachos colorados, betokening that we were near the limit of the monte and at the commencement of the tropical forest. The bushes were not too near each other here, as in the denser montes further south, but scattered, so that through the interspaces the eye was relieved by extensive views over the sea-like spreads of flowers. The convolvuli and creepers, too, that overflowed the bush, the trees, the bushes, were all in manifold flower and in fruit as well. All bore fruit. There was the prickly pear with its heavy load of juicy orbs, and the ancoche with its pearl-like drops, sweet to the taste and wholesome. There was a huge cactus, too, hereabouts, that bore plentiful fruit, somewhat like that of the prickly pear in outward appearance, but larger. Some of these were bursting open with ripeness and disclosed the delicious pulp within, cool as spring water and of a blood-red color. This is called the aukli here, a lovely fruit, and one of the most useful in South America. In the rainless, arid district of the Andes, in Santiago, and other provinces remote from the seacoast where the rainfall is irregular and rare, and where, after long months of cloudless, burning skies, the pastures wither up, the lagunas dry, and the cattle perish of drought. In rocky regions, too, baked by the vertical sun, where no other plant can find sustenance, 
the blessed aukli flourishes these stout prickly stems and manifold round fruit covered with a thick green rind blushing slightly with a red pulp within are fleshy and juicy to excess full of an insipid sap sucked in from the heavy dews of the night these plants are admirably constructed for the absorption of the floating vapors in the seca the draught the ranchero will go out and cut down with his machete a quantity of these soft pulpy cacti which the cattle will eagerly devour both stem and fruit therein finding an abundance of both food and drink were it not for the aukli many portions of this province now inhabited would have to be left utterly desolate we found the cool fruit which can be eaten with impunity very grateful in the pleasant fields we crossed this day, all of the winged people of the province seemed to have gathered. Never did I behold so many birds together. Thousands of cooing doves and chattering parrots and strange rainbow-colored little creatures that never rested. Goranchos, vultures, and owls were there, too, in legions, but preserving a more dignified appearance and seeming to despise the frivolity of their cousins. A land of fruit and birds and flowers, but of bichos and espinas, too. We heard from people that we met that the Rio Dulce, which we had to cross once more, was swollen by the rains and not practicable at the passage of Gauchana. So we had to follow a longer route and ride by the banks of the river to a point about a league distant from the city of Santiago, where there was another chata. We passed by a little town called Mamolo, where there was the usual square, this one more unfinished than any we had yet seen. There were but six houses scattered around it, and the jungle grew so dense and tall in the center of it that it was impossible from one side to see the houses on the other. I do not know how these pueblos are founded, but the August founders, whoever they may be, evidently as a rule expected that enormous cities were to rise on the spots of their choice. On so extensive a scale did they draw out the skeletons of these future Babylons. This, they told us, was an ancient pueblo, yet jaguars and pumas roamed unmolested in its square. At a rancho here we tasted a new and strange drink, which we all pretended to like, algaroba beer. To make this, the pods are well mashed in a hollow tree stump, water is poured on them, fermentation takes place, and in twenty-four hours you have your foaming ale. I cannot say much for Algaroba beer, but Algaroba spirit is by no means to be despised, and the cakes made from the pounded beans are very nice indeed. After riding about forty miles, we entered a forest nearly entirely level to the ground by what must have been a most terrific hurricane. On emerging from it, we came to an estancia called Robles, where we passed the night, being received with true Santiaganian hospitality. There was a Frenchman staying in the house, an engineer, who was engaged in constructing canals of irrigation for the sugar plantations near Santiago. He was in possession of a Paris paper three months old, which we devoured eagerly. April 1st. This morning... We rode down to the ford on the Rio Dulce, which was but a few leagues distant. We found the river in high flood. It here flowed between sandy shores, sloping up to a dense jungle, and was of considerable breadth. There were some men willing to swim our horses across, 
perilous work in this crescente, for heavy trees floated down rapidly on the turbid water. These men drove the horses into the stream nearly a mile above the spot they proposed landing at on the other side, so strong was the current. We and the rough Chata accomplished the voyage in the same manner. When we reached the other bank, we were landed on a quicksand. Several Indians now commenced to run rapidly backwards and forwards over this, and so soon formed a fairly hard road for ourselves and horses. This method of making a temporarily solid path across a quicksand is very effectual. In Africa, they first drive the oxen across a river that the sands may become sufficiently hard to allow their heavy wagons to cross without danger of their sinking permanently into the treacherous bottom. When we were beyond the river, we beheld, at about a league off, the ancient city of Santiago del Estero. The gleaming dome of the old cathedral dominated all, contrasting strangely by its size and the wealth lavished on its construction with the barbarism and poverty of the broad province we looked down upon. We were now entering a new country. As we approached the city, the untilled wilderness vanished. Canals of irrigation flowed sluggishly on either side of the road, for there was a road, and all around us, with a rustling and a crackling sound, waved great plantations of sugarcane. We were in the tropic north again, and with a sudden burst, as it were. No longer were around us the parched Montes and Salinas, but a damp, rainy, steaming land covered with a rank vegetation, the unhealthy, tepid tropics of Central South America. We rode into the city, a largest town, but thoroughly Argentine. There are but few gringos here, a mean place, so mean that there is not even a tramway in it, and no South American city can even pretend to be respectable without that. The miserable houses are of mud, brick being exception. Paving, there is none to speak of. The streets are of soft black mud. A disreputable, disheveled-looking sort of capital, whose inhabitants have a large proportion of Indian blood in their veins, the indolent, useless Indian blood, that is the curse of this republic. As we rode in, we saw the children, mahogany-colored with bright dark eyes and straight black hair, wallowing naked in the rich mud of the streets. There was a wild, barbaric look about the dirty city and its inhabitants that struck us much. We rode to the one hotel, the Hotel de Paris, a new institution. Of old, the traveler had to throw himself on the hospitality of the inhabitants or camp outside. A native keeps this, the first native hotel that we had experienced in this republic, may it be the last. The landlord was a haughty aristocrat who would not condescend to look after the comfort of his guests in the least, but stalked like a monarch through his palace, eyeing his guests as if they were so many intruders on his peace. The hotel was a strange old place and not wanting in magnificence. The house once of some governor or great man, a tyrant Taboara maybe. The patio was large, with a beautiful columned gallery all around it, delicately painted, but now crumbling to pieces from neglect. There was something of the ruined Moorish palace in the look of the whole building. There was a large courtyard behind the patio, in the center of which was a huge wooden structure like a hen coop. This was the cockpit, with its tiers of seats. We were divided into different bedrooms overlooking the patio. 
large rooms with gaudy draperies on the walls, now hanging in mildewed shreds, but betraying former grandeur and ostentation of wealth. I was quartered with another traveler, a Bolivian, who was driving cattle south, but was here laid up halfway with a very bad attack of the chuchu, or intermittent fever. Not a pleasant companion, for he groaned awfully when the shivering fit came on him. He told me he was taking 80 grains of sulfate of quinine a day, which is a largest dose, but not infrequently ordered here by the doctors. The plaza of Santiago is fine in its way and surrounded by rather imposing public buildings. A white plastered column, commemorative of liberty or something else, is in the center of it, of course, tumbling to pieces, for here, as in China, dilapidation is but rarely repaired. The day of our arrival, the municipality had awoke to a spasmodic fit of cleaning up. Some gaucho prisoners, guarded by stunted, dirty half-breed soldiers, were, smoking the while, hoeing up the grass which had been allowed to rankly overgrow all the flags of the desolate plaza, wherein no human being ever seemed to walk, fine promenade though it would make. The street sights of Santiago are of the country. Chinya girls, wild and half-naked, ride cross-legged on mules laden with alfalfa for sale. Sandaled gauchos loaf about solemnly and noiselessly. At intervals in the gloomy streets are stores where cheap brummagen and Manchester goods, gaudy and of bad quality, are exposed to view. With the exception of these last, the houses are like prisons with grated windows admitting but feeble light from the street. Outside some of the best of these dungeons, white, high-caste ladies, bonnetless, with their two raven tails hanging to their waists, and in dainty high-heeled shoes, sit on chairs in the street, chatting, fanning, drinking mate, and smoking cigarettes in a very free and easy manner. These are the noblest of the land, wives and daughters of deputies and generals, and in this fashion do the elite of Santiago take the air. It is a very out-of-door life, that of the people, and indeed the habitations are not such as would tempt one to stay indoors much. An out-of-doors life, but not a French out-of-door life. There are no brilliant cafes here, no splendid shops, no flaneurs. The citizens have no cheerful promenades, so stand and sit, a melancholy-looking race, outside their prison-like houses, like so many prisoners out for an airing. From here to Tucumán is a three days easy journey on horseback by the usual route, but on account of the flooded condition of the Rio Dulce, which we had yet once more to cross, we were recommended to make a detour and follow its banks to a point some fourteen leagues from here. End of chapter 16